Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine Miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine Miller Karras. Welcome. I'm Elaine Miller Karras, your host. And I also want to let you know we are also on Facebook Live at Resiliency Within. My guest today is Charlie Grosso. She's the founder and executive director of Hello Future, an international nonprofit working with refugee youth. Hello Future transforms the refugee youth experience from alone, stuck, and forgotten to connected and and empowered so they can thrive anywhere. They accomplish this through an innovative education model based on the 21st century skills essential to succeed in today's rapidly changing interconnected world. So Charlie uh, poses important questions as we think about systemic change to address the issues of our times, including the things that have happened recently in Afghanistan and the other events of the world. We have witnessed, as she calls, in vogue issues of the moment move to the background, often without real change occurring. Charlie asks some important questions. What if we What if we told a different story, a story that showed us how we are all connected as outsiders, as the other, that alienations are actually our shared bond and our belonging? In another word, despite of our race, ethnicity, socioeconomic class, we have all felt the sense of aloneness once upon a time. I certainly have, Charlie. I imagine you have as well. How would that affect the systems we design, the policies we write, and who is advocating for whom? And for how long? And I want to tell you a little bit more about Charlie. She, first of all, she looks like she's like 20, but she has 20 years of experience. <laughs> so you must have started at birth as, as an entrepreneur. She founded her own business at the age of 20. She went on to be a successful advertising photographer. She's traveled and toiled in over 80 plus countries working as a writer, a documentarian, a filmmaker, and consultant specializing in strategic management and program design for social enterprises, tech media companies, and NGOs. She is an Edmund Hillary Fellow, a Kravis Leadership Moonshot Fellow. I love that word moonshot, by the way. Um, and a founding member of Plus Acumen's The Foundry. She currently serves as an advisor for a number of startups, including Pretty Deadly and Squawk Squad, And Hello Future is a culmination of her lifelong passion for innovation and social justice. I always like to say when we say passion, you know, passion comes from the root word passos, which means to suffer. And so I think that whenever we start something, of course, that sometimes happens to us as well. So I would just want to say welcome to you, Charlie. And as we get started, what's on your mind today? What would you like to start with? I have a number of questions for you, but I'm turning it over to you. I'm just excited to be here with you, Elaine. Um, our first conversation when we met was so, as I said to you, was so, um, it was such a gift, it was such a gift. And, and you're such a talented listener and, uh, and interviewer. And, and I found our conversation went in all kinds of different directions. That was, that was deeply moving and, oh. and soul enriching. 
So well, I'm just happy to be here with you today. Well, thank you so much for your kind words. And, you know, I you shared with me part of your journey. And I, you know, I want to ask you a little bit about that because, Charlie, you are a Chinese-American woman, but you have an Italian last name. How did that come about? <laughs> it, uh, it confounds many, um, you know, and on paper, people think that I'm a man, um, understandably so. Um, I had a very uh, kind of challenging and traumatic upbringing. I was the, I am, I am the only daughter, the only child of the only son and, and kind of by Chinese cultural expectation, I was expected to be a boy um, and I'm not. And that was a big disappointment all around for the family. And so my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, who kind of had the honor and privilege of naming me in his disappointment, gave me a name that meant nothing. It, um, it was just a combination of sounds and it did not contain meaning. Um, and names are important. Names are important in, in most cultures, right? It, it seeds the expectations and the hope and the blessings and the protections of generations and generations. And, uh, and that was kind of a spiteful thing that he did for, you know, for not, for a choice that I did not make. Um, so as soon as I was able to read, I, I knew that my name didn't mean anything, right? All meanwhile, my cousins and school friends had names that just just had so much hope baked into them. Um, and then later when my parents divorced and my father sent me away to America from Taiwan because he was uh, abdicating his responsibility as a father, um, he sent me to live with strangers and to America, to a country I didn't know and didn't speak the language and... It was just 100% foreign to me. I was a teenager at the time. And first day um, upon arriving in America, I was I was shared a post-it note that had two columns of names on it in alphabetical orders. I knew my English alphabet, so I knew it was in alphabetical order. Um, and I was asked to pick a name. And I was like, I understand why I need an American name now that I'm in America, but I can't read. So you pick. Um, they pick the first name in this alphabetical list. Again, not a lot of thought was given to, to this process. So now I had this other name that, again, didn't have much meaning to me. It kind of anchored this other moment of trauma in, in my young life. So when I was 19 years old, I'm now a sophomore in college, I decided that I was going to name myself. I was not going to answer every day to something that no longer um, no longer had a positive meaning for me. So I wanted a boy's name. That was easy enough, right? It was this like active, like you wanted me to be a boy. It was so important to you and I'm not. So I'm going to choose a boy's name. I will be this person, right? So Charlie came to me easy enough. And, uh, and then now it came to time to choose the last name, which was just, Actually, it was a little bit more complicated because I didn't really know what to pick. Um, I wanted something to be meaningful, but, you know, like adapting the last name of a writer that I admired seemed also a little awkward. Um, It wasn't until then um, a professor of mine who was uh, who I was very close with and was treating me very much so like family said, I don't know why your family treats you as they do. Had my father been alive, he would have been proud of you as a daughter. 
um, yeah. you can have my family name if you like. And her last name happened to be Grosso. Oh so it, it was such a generous offer that, um, that I took her, I took her up on it. And so I can, she very so much so, tell me about the professor. She really saw you. She saw you. She she and was very much so family um, yes. through through my college years for me, absolutely. Um, so I became Charlie Grosso, and the and the punchline in this kind of um, story, <clears throat> excuse me, in the story of my life is that um, at the time I didn't know that Charlie Grosso is the same root as uh, Charlemagne, the the Roman conqueror. Um, so I went from a nothing girl to a great man because that is the literal translation of Charles the Great. Huh. Oh my goodness, thank you for sharing that story. But I, I, was, I just also struck me as you were speaking how <laughs> the name that your paternal grandfather gave to you that, you that had no meaning, everything that I know and I've learned about you, Charlie, is that you have a life of great meaning and that you are bringing great meaning to others. So, you know, it's those polar opposites that happen in life, right? Sometimes someone said to me long ago, I've said it before on the show, that sometimes, you know, the greatest light can also attract the greatest shadow. And so then I'm thinking, wow, the shadow created the greatest light in you and how you come forth in the world. So, again, thank you for that amazing story. And so I'm going to, I want to segue from that and ask you something else because, um, knowing a bit about your lived experience and just the story that you just told, how did this happen that you started to uh, advocate and help refugees? How did this happen? From I, I hear that you came to America from Taiwan and the story of your name and the meaning that you now have, but how did this lived experience influence your advocacy? It... Um I think it really hit me unexpectedly when um, when the Syria uh, civil war broke out. I, I was a photographer. I was a, I've been a career long photographer by then, um, creative director. Right. I, I had a career in in the in that profession. Right. And and at the same time, so, so the the kind of the easy connection to make was to to go cover it as a war journalist, right, as a documentarian. But that didn't quite feel right. I I was devouring coverage of this year in crisis at the time, and and I just really felt this pull in in my soul, if you will, mm-hmm. right? I I felt like I could understand what it feels like to be alone, stuck, and forgotten in this world, right? To be sent somewhere where they're there is no help, right? Where you didn't speak the language, where everything is foreign and you're just stuck there and and, and you're so uh, ripped from the life you knew once before, not by choice. I, I felt like I could understand that transcending this kind of geopolitical designation of being a refugee, um, transcending the socioeconomics, transcending the ethnicity and the religion and even the context of like why the Syrians were being displaced. That feeling, right? The feeling I knew, I knew in my bones. And and I know that most of us do. One when, time when or you, another. And you, know, you say that, and I maybe you can go into, I mean, you just gave a, somewhat of an explanation, but maybe you can tell us a little, more, a little more about that, is that you make the statement, we all are refugees. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? 
In having been in the refugee work for about six years now, since the founding of Hello Future, um, it's it's really interesting because it's not a conversation that average Americans really want to get deep involved in, right? Um, I think there's a surface level kind of an empathy. Um, they're empathetic, they're sympathetic, but then... But then I think we look away because the reality of it is so, it seems so frighteningly alien to what we know, right? We don't know what it's like to be displaced. We don't know what it's like to have that kind of violence um, inflicted upon us, right? To flee in the middle of the night. Um, We don't know what it's like to be stuck in a country with no resources and no legal status and and not speak the same language and to be treated as if you're third class citizens. So it's really uncomfortable. And so we start to look away. And then despite of our well-meaningness and our good hearts, it's it gets hard to engage. Right. And um, and then I think the geopolitical context of it all also is challenging to wade through for for an average American. And and I think it's hard to help without us feeling that deep empathetic connection. And so if it's so removed from us, we may not see it. So we may not feel it in that way. Maybe, I don't know, there's like a helplessness about it too, that even if we did know about it, I mean, we just have seen and witnessed all the um, individuals from Afghanistan um, in the airport trying to leave um, Afghanistan. And I understand they're in different parts of the world and they're at military bases and uh, Mm -hmm. American military bases. And now what? And so it's really out of the news right now, right? We have different things in the news today. And so, but then that doesn't stop. In fact, that is actually their suffering and their journey in the terms of that alienation that you're talking about is just beginning. I can't imagine, you know, just having raised two children. If I had two small children and I'm someplace where I don't know, I don't know where I'm going or what kind of future could be in store for me, or if there's even any future at all, which, you know, I, I, I can um, I can sense myself that that um, that wonder like okay how can I help so right. so that I'm just wondering so when you see that so I know that you created a nonprofit as a result of that so can please please go on I mean that was kind of just my thought about what you were saying so I think instead of being I think instead of being inundated right and may helpless. In, in the light of the geopolitical context, the, the logistical nightmare that, you know, that confronts refugees every day, right? What if we just set that aside and talk about what it, that experiences as a human, right? You know what it's like to be alone. I know what it's like to be alone, right? I believe everyone who's listening right now at one point in time have felt alone. Absolutely. It doesn't and yet matter. I also know at the same time, I've had advantage where I haven't lived in a, in a war-torn area of the United States. I also have had financial, you know, means so that I've had a certain, I mean, definitely I've had a world of advantage and privilege. And I know that's not the case for everyone. Right. So if we can connect, if we can connect to that experience on, on that emotional landscape, right, what it feels like to be alone, stuck, and forgotten, 
even if for us it was a temporary existence, right? Even if it only lasted an hour, a day, a month, right? But if we can relate to that space, then could we perhaps then relate better to to the refugee experience, right? Instead、so、of、like、trying、that? to connect on. The understanding and the geopolitics of it, and so then there's there can be the result of that. If you know, if, tell me if you know. Please correct me if this is not the correct thinking from your perspective. But then that if we do that, then we can have a felt sense of empathy, and if we can have、okay. that felt sense of empathy, then how does that translate into how we go forward in the world, not only in our own life, but how do we reach out to others? Absolutely, right. Absolutely. If if I know what it feels like to be you for just a second, no matter how how many things that is that on the surface is in the way of us being the same, right? Be it from privilege, be it from race, be it religion, be it gender, be it geography, be it you know the the designation of citizens versus refugees, right? Or even immigrants, right? Legal or illegal. Right, documented, undocumented. But if I know what it feels like to be you as a person, because we know what it feels like to to be in this set of feelings that nobody enjoys. You know, I'm, then, I'm just reminded. You know, I did some work on the Navajo reservation, really number thirty, probably thirty years ago. And you know, one of the adages that you probably have heard of, you know, is、um, if you walk in someone else's moccasins. You know their experiences, which I first heard on on the Navajo、um, reservation, and so that's what I that's what just came up for me. I mean, so that's so universal. If we walk in someone else's shoes, if we have a certain understanding, if we bring it to self, then we have a greater compassion of how we come forward, and so that leads me to you know your nonprofit. So can you tell us a little bit about it? Because I was reading about it on your website, I was so impressed. When I think about the Erbat refugee camp and what you're doing there, and the amazing youth you're working with, I really want all of our listeners to know about how you act. You know, so here we're talking about a philosophical construct, but then we say, you know, that's like, you know, that's what we have to do, right? We have to have that thought, and then how do we make the thoughts and the manifestations of those thoughts? Action, and this is what I think you've done with、uh, with your nonprofit. So, please inform us about what you do and what you're trying to do in the world. So, Hello Future is an educational nonprofit, and we design an innovative curriculum that teaches the young people, teenagers. Teenagers are the most、uh, vulnerable, at risk of radicalization, at risk for early marriage.、Um, And they're also kind of facing the most critical years of their person development, right? They're they're them becoming a full fledged person,、um, but there's the least amount of services for them. So we designed the our nonprofit to service youth specifically, and we teach them a set of essential skills that one needs to function in this 21st century society. We start with digital literacy, media literacy, financial literacy. We teach them communication skills so they can communicate their ideas and be understood, so that they can learn how to advocate for themselves.、Uh, we teach them entrepreneurship skills so that they can start some kind of a small business, so that they can gain that independence, right? 
the the reclaiming of future and livelihood is dependent on that ability to to exert that sense of agency that we have. Um, and so can I ask you about leaders. this? So in in our, so how did you find this particular refugee camp to start your work? Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? And then I would lo- I would love to have you take apart the pieces because we've had a you know before air conversation about digital literacy that you taught me things about what was what was missing that you could provide for these these young people. So so how did you first how did you find it? <laughs> how did you find this particular refugee camp? So in 2015, when the Syrian refugee crisis kind of hit this crescendo moment, um, I moved to Istanbul. I wanted to get closer to the crisis. I wanted to understand better. I, I was kind of following this journalistic instinct that I had, even though I knew I wasn't going to, my part in it was not as a journalist. Um, I had toyed with the idea of writing a book or shooting a short film around their the refugee experience but ultimately I decided not to it didn't feel like the right thing for me personally and I was really focused on how can I create something that that had the deepest impact for the refugees themselves um, I wanted I, I want a direct impact on on the people that I met, right? Rather than just um, being gifted with their stories and then and then disseminating it out in the world, um, but but knowing that those who read the stories would have very little connection with the people um, the the people who gifted me with their stories in the first place. Well, I just want to add too. So, um, the Trauma Resource Institute, you know, that is our our sponsor. We had a project in Istanbul. Um, in 2016. So I know a little bit about that. And I certainly learned a lot. But to know that the Syrian and Turkish border, you know, they, they, they come, they're right next to each other. And so, so many Syrians were really coming into Istanbul. And there yep. was a lot of conflict and, uh, you know, a lot of distress and suffering. And many people in Istanbul were trying to help the refugees coming in, and there were many people that were saying, "Why are you coming in?" You know, you know, it's a, a very, it's been a very turbulent time. It's certainly not over, um, no. but so you were really entering, really the kind of chaos of that that moment in history when a huge flux influx was coming into to Turkey. So I just wanted to add that little historical piece that I know about <laughs> from being there. Yes, yeah, we were we were there at the same time. Yes, we so- were there at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, so I spent a year um, living and interviewing families in Istanbul, um, Syrian families that have, you know, made their way to Istanbul. And then and then once I felt like I understood what the community context looked like, I wanted to see what it looked like in a refugee camp. Um, and really just by a set of circumstances and luck, um, I was able to gain access to multiple refugee camps um, across the border in Kurdistan, in Iraqi Kurdistan. And, and it was there that things just lined up, right? I, I got to interview families living in refugee camps, understood what the camp context was like. And then when I came back, it, it was through this year long interview process that the idea of Hello Future came about. And, and then I decided I had to come back to the States to raise money um, to, to even run a pilot on this fledgling idea that I had. 
And, and so I started having conversations with people and then one thing lined up against another. And then I was introduced to our partner organizations in Arbat refugee camp, which is how I returned back to Arbat because I had a partner on the ground. Um, they provided us with space, with some community facilitation. They have a trust of the community, which was fundamental and essential to our work because we're, you know, we're unknown coming in, right? Wanting to pilot a new program, be like, hey, can I try this and see how you guys like it? So, so the partner organization was super fundamental to, uh, to our return and to our success. So that was how I ended up in Arbat and in Kurdistan. Um, none of it was by design, really, was, you know, it was by happenstance. But Those, but that those was circumstances like, where one person leads to another person that leads to, to another project. Because I think, you know, honestly, I've seen this happen so many times. Some of our listeners may be thinking, well, how can I do something like that? And I think it's like you have to follow the information, right? And sometimes there's these little openings where something becomes visible that if you walk through it, opens up a whole opportunity. So that's what it sounds like you did with um, that part of Kurdistan. And so, um, so then as you, so you actually were on the ground in Kurdistan. So it's not like, I know that you live in New York City now, but you were actually there in person seeing what was happening with the youth. So I imagine in terms of what we were talking about earlier, walking in someone else's moccasins, you got to see firsthand what the young people and the adults, the children were experiencing. Absolutely. Um, I've, I've had the privilege of spending a lot of time, both in 2016 and then the year since, in, um, in spending time with Syrian refugee families, both in communities and then later in Arbat refugee camp where we work. Um, you know, and then, you know, before COVID, I would go out there two, three times a year um, to, to visit the work on site, to see the kids. Um, seeing the kids is always such a joy. And, uh, and see how far they're progressing, um, you know, and it's unfortunate because of COVID, I haven't been able to get out there. Well, I, I imagine that as soon as you can, you're going you're gonna to be there. I, we're almost time for our break. And I, when we come back, um, Charlie's going to talk to us more about the ingredients of the program, how some of you might even be um, interested in contributing to her program. But we really want to hear some stories about what the outcomes have been from some of her interventions as well. So she's going to she's going to share some stories with us, as well as giving us a little bit more information about the ingredients of it. So we will be back in just um, a, a couple minutes, and when we come back. Charlie Grasso will tell us more about her amazing organization that she started and the work that she's doing with with adolescent refugees in Iraq. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma informed and resiliency focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. 
Elaine Miller-Karis book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at elaine at resiliencywithin.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Elaine Miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life. Your health. Your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm here with Charlie Grasso, and she is talking about her nonprofit, Hello Future, that she founded. And she's going to tell us a little bit more about how she works with the the young people who are uh, refugees in Kurdistan um, from this from the Syrian challenges that that world has been experiencing for a number of years. So, so Charlie, over to you. Tell us more about what you learned about working in the camps and how you've put together the program that are helping the youth. And, and also, if you could kind of interweave in, because you're in one camp, but I know that's not the only camp you plan to be in. This is something that you're hoping will spread to many places in the world. So, over to you. So, um, you know, interviewing Syrian families, both in community and uh, in the refugee camp, um, now that I know, um, you know, a book or a film is ultimately not what I want, um, what was the right path for me out of this experience. And that I wanted to create something that was going to have a longer lasting impact on the refugees themselves. So prior to this, I've done, I've done a bit of work in technology and I was an early adapter to a lot of new platforms, right? So this is 2015, 2016. And I was really curious about the refugees relationship with technology in the middle East. Mobile phone penetration is high it's about 1.1 per person, which means that almost every person, almost like every other person has like two phones, right? They will have a smartphone and then a 
and then kind of a basic dial-up mobile phone. Refugee families were not any different. Um, every family I interviewed had at least one mobile phone. Um, whether they had a smartphone or a regular dial mobile was a matter of socioeconomics, right? But the heads of household always had a phone. And at the same time, I was reading reports about how phones were often the only personal belonging that they carried with them besides their clothes um, as they escaped Syria. Um, and then the United Nations had put out a report saying that they were finding globally refugees were spending upwards of 33% of their limited disposable income on connectivity, as in their paying. Oh my goodness, to get so one third online. income. Oh my gosh. That's, that's a tremendous amount of money to spend when you don't have a lot of money to start with. So everything here tells me that the mobile phone and this connectivity was really important to them. So then the question becomes what did you do with it? And so I would ask the family, I would say, hey, do you have a mobile phone? They're like, yes, I do. And they, you know, they bring it out and they show it to me. I'm like, that's great. Awesome, right? Like, what did you do with it? I would ask. And they said, oh, I'm on Facebook, WhatsApp, and Instagram. I was like, hey, that's great. I am too, right? As am I, right? What else did you do with it? And on that third question, they would get stumped and they'd be like, what do you mean what else I did with it? It's like, what else, what else do you do with your phones other than, Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp. And they're not really sure what I'm asking. And they're like, what do you mean? That is all I do with it. I was like, okay, that's cool, right? That's cool. And now the parents will want to talk to me about their kids' education and how worried they are of it. Prior to the civil war and the conflict, Syria had the highest literacy rates amongst all countries in the Middle East. It was at 86% on part with the United, Nation, with, with the United States. The Syrians was as literate as Americans. Syria also had the highest um, girls attending school percentage across the region as well. So they were they were a very educated populace that had a that put an emphasis on education as a whole. So the parents were concerned. They were concerned about their children's education. And I would ask them. I would say, Have you ever looked for things, videos, platform, games? programs that the kids can learn online to help supplement their those kind of anemic education opportunities that they have now that they're living in a refugee camp. You know, even something as simple as a language app, right? Like Duolingo. And no, they'd be like, what? It's because boy, that was so that question was a very important question. What else do you do with your your mobile device? Because that really gave you more information about how else you could help the children learn. Because before that, that digital literacy, I mean, I would just think, you know, I obviously made an assumption, well, digital literacy is just, it's just there. Of course, you can go on the internet and you can learn things. And the, but that wasn't the case. And so I, I really want to emphasize that to our listeners, because I think if we're thinking about how we use technology for education, even, even in the United States, that people may not know that they can get information that can add to their education in positive, healthful ways. I know we talk about how technology sometimes, um, you know, we talk about how it can also be something that's adversive, but it also can be very positive. And that's, I think, an important thing that I learned from you about how teaching the children this really made a huge difference. And you're also teaching their parents as well, right? So (laughs) it was that, because, you know, one of the things that struck me when going to your website, when you said, if you can, 
impact, what, 50% of the adolescents in the camp, how many more people are impacted in the entire community? Can you, I mean, because this is kind of connected to what you're talking about, right? Because it's about changing, changing things systemically. Absolutely. So part of the reason why we chose to work with teenagers, aside from the fact that they're, they're most at risk and they're most underserved, is also because they, they're the best uh, messenger forward, right? They're the best kind of viral factor, if you will, in, um, in this context. They can teach up to their parents. They can teach down to their siblings. They teach to each other, to their friends and to their peer groups. Right. And they're the easiest and the quickest to adapt to new technologies and to new ideas. So when, you know, when I ask the parents, have you ever gone and looked for educational tools for your kids to help them with their education? Every single parent I asked that question to looked at me with this blank stare in their eyes. They had no idea what I'm talking about. And then I would go back and even even like a in a more rudimentary question, right? I would ask, have you ever performed a search on the internet before? And the answer was a resounding no. They've never performed a search before, which means that their engagement on Facebook and Instagram is 100% squirrel, right? They would just look, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't go look for something, right? Their, their interaction is passive. So the analogy I like to make is that they're living in the world of limitless streaming, but they're watching three channels and they think that there's only um, these three channels to watch. So right? how did you encourage them to start having more than three channels? <laughs> That's the question, right? How, how, what did you do? What was, the, what was the intervention? Well, once, you know, a 15-year-old kid asks you, how do you Google? And you're like, okay, well, we don't actually know how to Google. We have to kind of start with some of the fundamentals. Um, I came back to the States, raised a little bit of money to create to run a pilot. And we went back out into the field the next year and, uh, and I had a pilot program on digital literacy for teenagers. And that was, that was where we started. We started with some really kind of basic ideas, um, privacy and vulnerability, right? They're, they're already an at-risk population. So vulnerability, um, vulnerability and privacy is really important. So we talked about some of those basic ideas. We talked about search. Um, we realized that in the teaching of the pilot, that media literacy had to get factored into the overall imagining and thinking of digital literacy. Right. And, uh, and then we also taught them a basic set of um, workplace tools, if you will, right? How to send an email, how to, uh, I know it sounds super easy, but it's actually, it, there's a couple of steps to it, right? First of all, the, the body of your message does not fit in the title, does not fit in the subject line <laughs> of your email, right? So you, ta- you taught them the practicalities of how to do these things. Now, if, so once you taught them this, you know, the literacy, the digital literacy, what happened after that? What did you build upon? Because that sounds like that's almost foundational in today's world for them to not only gain in, um, information, but also how to send, you know, in, information out to receive information from people. I mean, is that what you learned? So what, would, what was the next step? So the, the formulation got a little bit more complex at that point, right? 
because we're like, we want to teach you the basics of the internet, but the internet itself is actually a really complex space and you can't, and that this idea um, that many people have, right, that you just need to give a ting a device and he and she are automatically digitally literate, right? They understand how to share, search, and uh, and create content online, right? But that's but that's a little bit of a red herring because a kid can click like on on a platform does not under, does not mean that he or she understands the complexity of what is happening here, right? So some of the simpler things that are immediately apparent is how is their data being shared, right? Why is this platform free, right? What part of my information and my data that is being mined and used um, that makes this platform free for me, right? Those, those, those are not things that a teenager would automatically think about. No, but I think that you're also talking about systems thinking. You, help, you were trying to help them saying, this is this, but this is also connected to a larger picture. A hundred percent. The there's media literacy is a big component of this, right? Um, every family I interview say that their biggest source of news, of whether it be it you know news back from Syria, news of the world, or or news of family members, come from Facebook, right? But there's no sense of like, how do you know what you're reading is real? How do you know what you're reading is true? Right. And this is back in 2016. <laughs> and this, when is a I big, was, this is a big question right now as well in all over the world. Right. Yeah. And this was 2016 when I was doing this research and when this was the finding right before fake news was was everywhere in the headlines. Right. Um, part of kind of the psychosphere that it is right now. So, again, we're talking about an at risk population um, that just has no sense of what they're ingesting in terms of incoming. Right. So the media literacy had to get folded into part of it. Right. We already knew that there that social media was having this kind of um, conflicting, if you will, outcome in young people. Right. It was right. There, there was there was anecdotal evidence that, you know, some of the young people were on Instagram and it was making them feel bad. Right. There was cases for depression. Right. And so so then again, and we know now through more research that that, ha- that does happen and you already have a population that's been displaced, then that can be an amplification of, of really a mental health crisis for the family. And certainly with 100%. a youth that, that may not feel they have much possibility and hope for the future. So, I, you know, so part of, you know, why I love the name of your program, Hello Future, is that with understanding the digital literacy than the media literacy, but you talked about microfinance. I mean, having an income. And, you know, I think when we think about refugee camps, I think about them as being temporary, but we know that many people live long lives in refugee camps. So can you tell us a little bit about the microfinance and how that went to that part of it? And what, can you tell us some stories about what some of the young people are doing based on these foundational learnings that you were able to, um, to help them learn? Absolutely. So as you can see, like the program grew, right? It, it grew out of this kind of early idea of digital literacy and digital skills into, into just more complex environment, right? We, we grew into media literacy, we grew into storytelling and communications, because those are also foundational in how we understand the incoming, right? How do we parse, right? And then also, how do we communicate? 
right? I think I think one of the a very common um, common shared experience amongst teenagers worldwide is that they have so much to say, and yes. they feel like you know they often feel like they're not being listened to. Right. And or that they have so much to say, but they don't know how to communicate those thoughts and feelings and ideas. Right. So so communication is critical to their ability to self-advocate. Right. So so then we build on the communication ideas and then ultimately, um, you know, I'm sure as you talk about trauma and resiliency and healing, hope is part of that, too. Right. But. Hope is a fire that we have to tend, right? And and I think it's it's best to tend to that fire with skills and opportunities, right? With that vision of a future, with the teens being able to exercise their sense of abilities and agencies in order to to change their community for the better, for them to reach for that future that they want in however mental however many incremental and micro steps that they can get to, right? So, um, for example, and then that's how, and then with that idea, that's how the the small business incubator um, condensed MBA program for refugees came about. Because that, so that feels like... It's small business incubator. That's yeah, what you call it. Small business it. incubator. Okay, okay. so what happens incubator. in that small business in- incubator? I'm very interested in that. Um, in the small business incubator, we're going to teach our refugee youth um, who have gone through the kind of four foundational courses that we teach um, a series of just more in-depth business skills. And then in the end of the course, they're going to pitch for grant money, right? Startup money, essentially. And they're going to pitch for startup money so that they can have a little bit of money to start a business. Not a big business, just a small business. Something that they what can kind manage, of business, something they can wrap. But what kind of business, can you give us some examples, some concrete examples of what those businesses are that they've created? Um, well, we have yet to pilot this part. Okay. So that's we have yet to up. pilot this part. That's coming up. Um, I think any numbers of things are possible, right? I think anything from like a little corner store to, you know, tutoring service, babysitting service, and and anything that we have yet to think of, I think... I let me let me give you an example of something the kids had done. Okay. So in the 101 program, the kids go through an exercise called a $5 business. So this is first class, first time we're really interacting with the teenagers. Um, and they are asked to work in a group, which they've never done before. So they have to learn how to negotiate amongst each other. They have to assign jobs, right? They have to figure out what happens when like two of your members flake out. Those things happen in real life, right? Like yes, they, they have to figure out yes. how to negotiate and, and and manage each other and manage themselves. So, and they're given the equivalent of $5. And now this is super important. They're not given $5. They're given the local equivalent of $5. So it's not like, this is not a context in which they're like, oh, well, $5 is a lot of money to them. No, like it, it's it's as much to them as it is to us. Right, so local equivalent of five dollars, and they're asked to take a week to plan out this business idea and write out a, a proper PNL, and they have two hours to execute this business idea, and then they have to create a whole presentation, including you know a pitch deck, 
and in a PNL and like present it to us and tell us what they learned and how they did in their ideas. So my favorite business of all time is this group of girls. They, um, they had just learned virtual reality. We had a virtual reality lesson prior to the $5 business. So this is important in terms of how quickly the turnaround is, right? They've never seen virtual reality before. They had their minds blown. The next day we say, okay, now here's, here's your $5 business challenge. The girls say, I want to do a virtual reality business. So they plan out a $5 business in this virtual reality business. Sorry. Um, they spend their $5, you know, kind of startup capital with us by renting the headset from us. So that was where they spend their money. And they split up in two subgroups because they only have two hours to make the most amount of pos- money possible. So group A walked all over the camp and ran into any person that they saw and said, would you like a virtual reality experience to name the place of your dreams? The first group did okay. Um, first group kind of essentially ran into a choice paralysis issue, which they didn't know, right? But I want us to note that these group of teenagers have also are automatically A-B testing themselves, not knowing either. They put themselves in two different groups. The second group went around the camp just the same, but instead they went to grandmothers and grandfathers. And they said, that was very smart, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It was 100%. They knew their target, right? It started to be more targeted. And they said, Grandma, Grandpa, I will give you a virtual reality experience to Mecca. Hmm. So they were more specific. They were far more specific. They were specific in their targeting. They were specific in the offering. And for those who don't know, a trip to Mecca for a Muslim is like a, it's like the dream of a lifetime, right? Like you're supposed to make a pilgrimage to Mecca, to Mecca sometime in your life. So it's, it will be like a Catholic going to the Vatican. Yes. That's probably the closest analogy to make so it's really important it has this emotional resonance for the grandparents right the grandparents clearly are most likely not we're going to make it to mecca because it's an expensive trip and it's a big trip but it's something that they probably all really long for so the kids spoke to a felt longing yes. and they knew their audience and these kids made 23 dollars in two hours for their $5 investment. It's a great return on profit. So they saw in vivo, in real life, how this idea could actually create a service, a service that has great meaning also, and also how it could return income to them. Absolutely, right? And let's just (laughs) add it, the, the learning trajectory here, right? It literally took them six days from having a virtual reality experience the first time to executing this $5 business and then reporting back. It was six days, right? And it was a beautiful business. It's a business that needs to get cleaned up, right? But it could stand up as a real business. Well, and I just practicality of what you're doing, because you said this was kind of like in the basic 101, and I know you have more in store 
of what you're you're creating for the young people. And so, and even the fact that they're going to be preparing their proposals. And then I imagine there's a committee of you that are going to look at them and decide on which ones you're going to fund through your organization. So I want to make sure we um, we only have a few minutes left. Oh my gosh, Charlie, it's gone so fast. <laughs> Is um, how can people find find out more information about the work that you're doing? Can you give us your website and how they could contact you if they want to know more about the components? Because I the last time I looked in your website, there were like 300 additional kids waiting to get into your program. So it's spreading, and the kids want to come. So how, can you please tell us how to get in touch with you? Uh, you can learn more about Hello Future and the work we're doing at hellofuture.io, H-E-L-L-O-F-U-T-U-R-E.io. Um, we're, we're, a, we're a nonprofit organization, 100% funded by generous donors such as yourself. So any, um, any support you can give us is always helpful. Um, and we're also looking for um, judges and volunteers to um to kind of do these remote interactions with our students as well. Um, if you have questions about it or are interested, please send me, uh, drop me an email. You can find my email on the website. Um, again, that's hellofuture.io. And uh, yeah. I can just see the smile on your face. I mean, we have, you have a minute to tell me what brings you the most joy in your work that you've, you've described a little bit like a droplet so far. Seeing these kids realizing the power that they have, their potentials, and then feeling like they have the tools and the skills they need in order to reach for those dreams. Oh, my. Um, This is what I call also looking at what else is true in the world is that there's so much suffering, and certainly the Syrians have suffered greatly. All the refugees in the world suffer in terms of being displaced. But these kinds of ideas that you're bringing to these children are truly changing their lives presently and will change them in the future. So this is one of the ways I say you are cultivating the well-being. That's, of course, one of the definitions of resiliency that we kind of talked about a little bit. So as you all are going through, as our listeners are going through your your world and thinking about how you can contribute. And if you have that sense that you felt alienated and to go back to your, we are all refugees. I want you to remember hello future and how this one organization is doing so much to change the world. And Charlie, you have great meaning to me. Your name now has a greater meaning to me that you've explained it to me and to our listeners. And I want to thank you so much for being with us and, and really how you took what happened to you in your life and you have built something so important and so powerful. So this is one example all of my listeners of how our struggles, our suffering can also lead to hope, well-being, and definitely a new future for many people, including for you and for me and for all of us. Thank you. Thank you, Elaine. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And until next time, this is Elaine Miller-Karras signing off from Resiliency Within. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karras, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. 
Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.